The New Testament reading this morning is found from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to John. Glory to you, O Lord. After Jesus had spoken these words, he looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all people to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. I have made your name known to those whom you gave me from the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words that you gave to me I have given to them, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am asking on their behalf, I am not asking on behalf of the world, but on behalf of those whom you gave me, because they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is a gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. you join me in prayer. Our gracious God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
we do thank you for the gospel of Christ. We thank you for these scriptures that we just heard read. We thank you for your unfailing love with which you embrace us in Christ and your almighty power with which you enliven us by your Holy Spirit. And we pray now that as we sit with your scriptures that you would be here with us. We pray that you would stir us to life, that you would stir us to attention, attentiveness toward you, and that you would be making our hearts burn within us in the presence of Christ and enlightening our minds in the knowledge of him so that we may be transformed into his likeness, remade in your image, and unleashed in your world as your servants, and that your church may be one. So would you give us your grace this morning and do a good work in us, we pray. Amen. So this morning we are continuing our series that we're calling The Ties That Bind Us, where we're focusing on Christian beliefs and practices that are central to our life together as the church. And we're coming back, right, after a long COVID separation. We're, we're coming back together. Uh, we're also coming together for the first time as a newly merged church, Resurrection. And hopefully this series, as we do that coming together and coming back together, hopefully this series will help us focus our energy and our attention on what's most important. And so this, the past couple of weeks, we've been revisiting this idea from St. Augustine that what makes a people a people is their agreement to share the things they love, right? Which prompts us to ask the question and to sit with these questions, what love do we agree to share as the church? And what does that agreement to share that love look like in practice? And so far we've considered God the Trinity and we've considered Christ as central to our life together. This morning we turn our attention to God the Spirit, and if Christ is, as we saw last week and considered last week, sort of that great centerpiece of centerpieces, right? If we think about what is at the center of our life together, Christ is the center of all the things we might say might go at the center. And as we've also considered what is the glue that holds us together as the church, this morning I hope we'll consider that the Spirit of God is the glue that holds the church together. The Spirit is that dynamic life force of the church, the breath of God proceeding from Father and Son and filling Christ's body on earth, enlivening our mortal bodies, that fire of God poured out from heaven to inflame our hearts and to kindle our prayers that they may rise as incense to the Father, the wind of God that fills our sails and carries the church into the world as a vessel of God's blessing for all the nations of the earth. It's this spirit of truth who leads the church into all truth, as the Gospel of John says. And as the Apostle Paul explains, it's the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, who now lives in us, who unites us to the risen Christ, and who unites us to one another in Christ, who holds us with steadfast love and unswerving faithfulness and all the power of heaven, such that the Apostle Paul can say that there's nothing not life, not death, not angels or rulers, not things present or future, no powers, no height, nor depth, or anything else in all of creation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And this spirit, St. Augustine describes as this God who is nearer to us than our own breath. 
The Lord is nearer than we know. His Spirit is with us. And in our scripture passage from Ephesians that we just read, the Apostle Paul, we see he's writing with concern for this fragile infant church that's still very much in the initial stages of formation and development. And Paul's chief concern here is that they know, that the Ephesians would know the origins and the implications of their unity as the church. And I think that what Paul says to the church in Ephesus is very important for us to hear as the church here in Philadelphia in 2021 as we come together as resurrection. Paul is going to cast a vision of the unity of the church that is not grounded in our agreement on issues, but grounded in a new thing God has done in Christ. A vision of the unity of the church that's not ours to achieve, but ours to receive and participate in by God's Spirit and by God's grace. In the verses leading up to our passage here, Paul has just described all that God has done in Christ. That in Jesus, God has torn down this dividing wall that separated human beings from God and the dividing walls that separate human beings from one another. God has reconciled in one body to himself, all of us. Christ himself is our peace, Paul writes. And though we once walked in the old ways of sin and death, following the course of this world, God, who is rich in mercy and love, made us alive together with Christ, Paul writes, so that we may walk anew in good works for which God has prepared beforehand for his people. And then we come to this section in chapter 4, and Paul picks up this language of walking to discuss further what it looks like for us to live in light of this reconciliation and in light of this peace that we now have in Christ. And what he says is lead a life worthy of your calling, or as we might find it in some other translations, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then Paul goes on to unpack just what he means by both our calling and what it looks like to lead a life worthy of that calling, right? By calling, Paul is simply referring to this one enormously important and life-changing fact that he's been discussing up to this point in the letter, that God's people are one in Christ. That all the divisions, all the strife that used to separate human beings from God and that carve up human societies and families all over the place, that those divisions and those points of brokenness, God has dealt definitively with them in Jesus, making peace through the blood of his cross, Paul says, and by creating a new reality in his spirit, this one body in which God calls us to live together in peace with God and one another. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. That's seven ones. Seven, that's an important number, right? It's used intentionally. It's supposed to convey a fullness or a completion or a perfection of some idea that's being communicated. Paul is using the word one seven times to emphasize this point that the unity of the church is a fact, not just an aspiration, not just something we hope for. It's something that's real. 
that the oneness of God's people is not a reality that God has left up to us to figure out, but it's something God has done himself in Christ, and he now calls us to join him in that. And I think that's vitally important for us as a church to just reckon with that and recognize it for what it is if we're going to live together in the way that God intends. Because as Americans, as Westerners, as post-enlightenment people, as Protestants, we don't intuit this at all. We have some default settings that make it really difficult for us to even imagine, much less desire, a unity like that, right? How do we typically think about unity in the church as Americans, as Westerners, as Protestants, as people who've drunk the Kool-Aid of enlightenment, modern thinking? That's just who we are, let's be honest, right? How do we think about unity? We often think about it, unity as rooted in agreement on issues, right? Maybe those are theological issues. Maybe those are ethical issues. And the unity of the church is essentially called into question around, can we agree on this idea? Can we agree on this practice? But, to see, but you see, even those debates, which are at the center of all these divisions that we've seen past and present in our church, as we go to war with one, another, with one another over who's right and who's wrong and who can hang together and will we persist, to hang the whole weight of the unity of the church on our ability to agree is actually to look in exactly the wrong place for the foundation of our unity to begin with. It's actually to understand our unity in a fundamentally non-Christian way. It's a modernist way. And so whether it's unity that's rooted in our agreement on issues or whether it's unity that's rooted in uniformity of belief or practice or culture or whether it's unity rooted in cultural assimilation where a dominant culture goes and plants a flag and plants a church and if you want to be part of it, you got to be like us. Or whether it's the peace and purity of the church becoming like a spiritualized way of talking about policing boundaries of the community in order to maintain uh, one of these counterfeit versions of unity that we cling to as American, Western, Enlightenment, Protestants. Our church has a cancer, and the gospel of Jesus is desperately needed if we are going to heal as the church and bear witness with our life together to the beautiful gospel that is only made known by the testimony of the beautiful community that embodies the message and proclaims it to the world, not only with our lips, but with our lives. But, as I said, it's really difficult for us. We, we start with a kind of, you know, um, defect, if you will, culturally, just because of where and when and who we are. It's really difficult for us to imagine a version of unity that doesn't begin with our opting in or opting out on our own accord but rather belonging to one another simply because Jesus has put us together. But this vision of unity that Paul gives to the church is one in which the various members of the body are brought together not because they, tr- they click or not because they just track on the same page with the various things that they think about or do, but that in Christ God has made them one. They're siblings forever and invited into a, into a life of working out family life in the earth, which Paul says here will involve making every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Hard work 
of being one. When we fix our gaze on the church's borders and spend our energy policing the boundary, it's nearly impossible for us to fix our gaze on Christ who is at the center. We become so obsessed with ourselves and where we stand relative to others that we miss the goodness of what it is that Jesus is doing and has done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says, Christian brotherhood, and I think we should add sisterhood, or siblinghood, is not an ideal we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. It's not the experience of Christian brotherhood, siblinghood, but solid and certain faith in it that holds us together. Simply put, Christian unity is a reality created by God in Christ. And the calling that the Apostle Paul is holding up for the Ephesian church to wrestle with is this calling to participate in that reality that God has, in fact, torn down the dividing walls, has, in fact, created one new humanity in Christ, one new family of every tribe, tongue, and nation, and called us to be one in the Spirit and not in all the other common denominators we choose to prefer in which we become one in a lesser, cheaper, less beautiful way. Bear with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Bear with one another. Make space for one another to be who they are. Be patient with one another and allow time for them to become more and more of who God is growing them up to be. Learn to wait with them for what God will do, not simply waiting for them to change. Be gentle with one another as you do life together. Don't be harsh with the people God has given you to be your companions, your siblings. When you hear their stories or when you experience the inevitable friction of their life rubbing up against yours, when you see their faults, be gentle and be humble. Learn to recognize and appreciate all the ways that others bear with you and be patient with you and are gentle with you. Bear with one another in love. Why? Because you're one. Because you're family. Family sticks together. Because God has stuck you together as one family and because Christ is your peace. And for the Apostle Paul, this bond of oneness in the body of Christ is an essential aspect of this good news of Jesus, and our calling to bear with one another in love is essential for our living according to the gospel of Jesus. And this is really important because so often it's the integrity of the gospel that gets foregrounded in all the things that cut up and divide the church, right? But it is in dividing the church that we sacrifice the gospel that we seek to contend. It's this cancer that's crept into the center of the Protestant church, of the American church, of really the church around, across time and space, but uniquely touches this moment that we're living in right now, I think, in a very powerful way. And this message of reconciliation and unity in Christ is absolutely essential for our bearing faithful witness in this time and place as this church. This idea that God has done something new in Christ. It really has everything to do with how we ought to live together, how we live with our families and friends, with our spouses and our roommates, with children and parents, with the people in the church who are difficult to love, right? Which might be you, might be me. You're somebody's difficult person, right? 
So am I. I'm probably yours. I don't know. But with people who disagree, with churches, with other denominations who don't see things the same way or don't do things just the way we like, this invitation to live according to what God has done in Christ is this invitation and instruction to bear with one another in love because we're one in Christ. And so Paul is essentially holding up the story of Jesus and what God has done. He's saying, live by this story and not by any one of these other ones that we want to tell ourselves about our lives. Because those other stories, at the end of the day, are lies, right? And those lies, are, they're really sneaky, and they're so good at wiggling their heads into our hearts and our relationships and our dreams for the future. We let the lie hijack our imagination and our desires for our own lives in a million ways, these big and small ways, that just say to us, like, you know, you don't belong to anyone. No one really belongs to you. You're an island. You're the author of your own story, and if the story ever gets dull or boring or tragic, it's your job to write, to write out the lame characters, who are spoiling the party, right? Like, we, we intuit this. We, we imbibe this because we live in such an individualistic moment. We fall for it. Why? Well, one is just simply, I think, yes, the spirit of our age is a very individualistic one, and it captivates our imaginations in ways that we don't even understand. And that's why this beautiful vision of our calling in Christ to live as, as one with one another, it often just falls flat with us because we, don't, we just don't get it. We just literally don't get the fact that we belong to one another in a way that's not our self-selecting into a belonging to one another. It's just impossible for us to imagine that sometimes just because of the world we, we live in, the air that we breathe. We are individualists, and the gospel is a helpful corrective to that hardwiring. But another reason I think we fall for the lie is just simply that people are difficult. It's hard to bear with one another in love. It's hard to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, right? In fact, it can be worse than difficult. It can be gut-wrenching and depleting and crazy-making. If you've tried, you know. And so the lie becomes attractive because it seems like relief. And it does, of course, offer relief in one sense. The problem is that the relief it offers is fleeting and the side effects are toxic, both for us and for those in our lives. But nonetheless, we fall for it, and we become good at justifying in all sorts of ways why we give up on one another or become content with disunity at both the interpersonal and institutional levels, the distance that grows in our relationships and the divisions that fester in the church. But there's this third reason that I think lies beneath all the other reasons we fall for the lie, and it's the most important one. We fall for the lie, I think, and we fail to bear witness with one another and bear with one another in love because we lose sight of the God who bears with us in love. God bears with you and with me in love in an absolutely remarkable way. If you're just honest about your own life and your own story, your own fickleness, your own failure, your own fleetingness, my own, God's persistent love, God's bearing with us in love and mercy is amazing, and it's beautiful, and we lose sight of it. God knows all of your story. How often do you really think about that? Everything about you, every piece of you, every aspect of your story, God knows it all. 
And God has been walking with you every step of the way, through every up and down of your life, giving you space to grow up, being patient with you, not flying off the handle in frustration, but tending to you gently, being gentle even in your harshest moments, right? Sticking with you even when you pull away or become cynical, or loving you even when you are difficult to love, loving me even when I am difficult to love. And this good news of what God has done in Jesus is that what God has done is truly world-changing, and it is truly religion-shattering what God has done in Christ. That in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son Jesus to unite all things in him, that these dividing walls that separate us have been torn down, that in this divided us-them world, God went to every single them and embraced them to make one us in Christ and to call us to live like that into the world. In this new humanity, this new creation, this oneness that God draws us into by gracious invitation and unction of his spirit, who persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus, who loved us first. And the reason you're included in this new family of God, and the reason I'm included in this new family of God, is not that we think the right thoughts or believe the right beliefs. It's not that you do the right things and don't do the wrong things. It's not that you're the right kind of person and not the wrong kind of person. And it's not because of your politics or your denominational affiliation or your being on the right side of hot button issues. Any of those things is important, not dismissing the importance of thinking right things or doing good things. But the reason that you are included in God's family is not because of any of those things. You're not saved by your theology and you're not saved by your behavior. You're saved by a risen Savior who has come for you, by God himself who stepped into this world and done everything required to make peace with you and with your neighbor by the blood of his cross. You're saved by a living Savior And I'm saved by a living Savior, regardless of how well we understand that. And not reflective of how consistently we live according to that. And that is profoundly good news. It's profoundly good news that I am not okay with God because of my theology, because I'll let you in on a little secret. There's a problem with my theology. There's something I believe to be true that isn't true. And there's an assumption that I hold very deeply that blinds me to important things that I would be able to see if I didn't hold this assumption. Do you want to know what it is? So do I. If I knew, I would change my mind and think differently, right? How do I know it's there if I don't know what it is? Because that's been true of every human being that has ever walked the face of the earth in any generation ever in history. How could I possibly be different? There's never been anyone who held the right theology. (laughs) Praise God for his mercy on bad theologians like us, right? And praise God for the gift of one another and the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that allow us to be in one family with people of differing perspectives, different interpretations, different cultural backgrounds, different ways to see the world that we desperately need to listen to and understand if we are going to continue to grow up more and more into the fullness of the beautiful community that reflects this good news that is oriented around God's beloved son, crucified and raised, Jesus, and made alive by his spirit of new creation. Christine Pohl says that the best testimony to the truth of the gospel is the quality of our life together. 
that Jesus risked his reputation and the credibility of his story by tying them to how his followers live and care for one another in community. How we live together is the most persuasive sermon we'll ever get to preach. So Resurrection Philadelphia, what sermon will we preach with our life together? Will it be this sermon that testifies to the remarkable new creation of God in Christ? That testifies to the unity of the spirit that is real, that this one God and Father of all has in fact made one people and that we are so committed to receiving all the gifts God would give us in one another that we hold space for one another. Will we show up as teammates with the other churches in the city and not as competitors? Will we seek together to be co-conspirators in this divine mission of blessing the earth and blessing our neighbors? Will we hold space for one another and be family? Will we listen to one another? Will we love one another? I hope so. Just to close, I want to share a quote from Rowan Williams, um, who, as many of you know, was once the Archbishop of Canterbury over the Church of England and pastored that large church through um, all kinds of conflict and confusion uh, in the late 20th century. Um, And he writes this about Christian unity. Unity at all costs is indeed not a Christian goal. Our unity is Christ-shaped or it is empty. Your first call, so long as we can think of ourselves as still speaking the same language, is to stay in engagement with those who decide differently. This, I have suggested, means living with the awareness that the church and I as a part of it share not only in grace but in failure. And thus we stay alongside those on the other side in hope that we may still be exchanging gifts, the gift of Christ, in some ways, for one another's healing. One of our problems, especially in our media-conscious age, is that we talk past each other and in each other's absence. Even when we speak face-to-face, it is often in a lock of mutual suspicion and deep anxiety. The body of Christ, however, requires more of us. It requires staying alongside. This requirement implies that the most profound service we can do for each other is point to Christ, to turn from our confrontation in silence to the Christ at whom we all try to look, to say to one another from time to time, hopefully and gently, do you see that? This is how how I see him. Can you see too? I think it's a profoundly hopeful vision for the church's life together, and I hope we hold it as aspirational and inspirational for our life together. May God give us grace to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace because God has loved us first and made peace with us and peace between us through the blood of Christ's cross. This is good news, friends. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.